Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. In 1776, a new nation was born that had aspirations of being different from every nation that had gone before it. It was to be an experiment in liberty and freedom, unlike anything the world had ever seen. That new nation would be built upon the basic assumptions, self-evident truths as declared in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, it's hard to imagine that such a list would be considered revolutionary, but at the time, of course, it was. But I think we we can all agree that those truths, those self-evident truths, really make up the social contract of, of our nation that all men are created equal and that we have the right to pursue life, liberty, and, and, and happiness as citizens of this nation. And, and one of the things I think history has shown is that when, when America as a nation gets away from those self-evident truths, that's when she experiences her greatest struggles. When we get away from those, those, that basic contract that all men are created equal and that they're endowed by their creator with certain rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, one of the things that it's taught us, though, is that, is that every nation, every kingdom is built on certain basic assumptions. Even the most evil nations are built this way. For example, North Korea, not necessarily a place you want to go visit for vacation. Uh, I'm sure you could get a good deal on a VRBO there or something. Um, however, the, the basic premise of, of that of that country is loyalty to the to the Kim regime. They treat it like a like he's a, like he's a deity, um, and so that's the basic premise of of that nation that that kind of holds that thing together. Uh, obviously, as we've worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount, we've picked up on the fact that that the kingdom of God is built upon a certain set of unalienable truths. Obviously, for us as Christians, the kingdom of God, the, the foundational truth is the gospel, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ came in the form of a, of a, of a human being, took on our flesh, and, and, and walked in our shoes. He gave his life and in substitute for us and then rose again three days later. The gospel, of course, is the citizenship test for the kingdom of God. You don't get into the kingdom without the gospel. That's the, that's the, the, the gateway into the kingdom of God. But, but once you're part of the kingdom, there's some guiding principles that govern our lives as citizens of the kingdom. Now, what are those principles? We might point to the, to the Ten Commandments, that, that that's a set of, of governing principles, and we certainly affirm and, and, and hold true to those. But I believe it can be boiled down to an even simpler formula. In the Sermon on the Mount, that, that basic formula is known uh, to us today as the golden rule. If you've got your Bibles today, please go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we will pick up here in verse 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. I would invite you to stand with me as we read these words from Matthew chapter 7 
beginning in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. God, I thank you for the precious words that we have in the Sermon on the Mount. We pray that you might help us to recognize and understand the golden rule today as we consider these precious words. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, there is a, a feeling that the Sermon on the Mount in, these, in this last chapter has, has sort of digressed into short, kind of little moral platitudes about how we should live. We've got a couple of verses on this topic and a couple of verses on that topic, and, and it's, it's given to us in a, in a set of, of almost rapid-fire uh, movement of thought here. We've got the Lord's Prayer back in chapter 6. We've got another couple of verses on prayer here in chapter 7. But you know, our, our modern Bible publishers haven't helped us in this, in this feeling. As, if you'll notice that they've inserted all of these headings in between the verses where they perceive there to be a, a change in theme. I prefer the English Standard Version. They've got six different headings in chapter 7 alone. Now, now please keep in mind that these, these headings that are there, these headings aren't Scripture. The headings in your Bible are not the inspired, uh, inerrant Word of God. They've been added by publishers and editors along the way. Uh, they create breaks based on how the publisher decides the text should be broken up. They create perfect little little places for preachers to pick sermons from. And so, so you know, if you wonder what the preacher's going to preach on, then look at the next section. And, and, and again, it gets utilized in that way. But we do need to keep in mind that we are dealing with one body of teaching from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one sermon that Jesus preached. And so these headings are, are not giving us different teachings of Jesus. They're all part of the same teaching, the same Sermon on the Mount. And so while we recognize that these little headings are, are helpful, they do create a sense that this is more of a list of long proverbs rather than a solid body of teaching. So we need to make sure that we work to keep all of this in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and the context of the Sermon on the Mount is, is this, that, that this is a manifesto of the kingdom of God. If you want to know what it looks like to be a citizen of God's kingdom, then the Sermon on the Mount is a great place for you to go to look and see what that, what that looks like. The, the Sermon on the Mount gives us a picture of, of what it means to be citizens of God's kingdom, of to, to have the character of kingdom citizens, what it means to have the spiritual devotion of citizens of God's kingdom. And it also gives us a picture of what it looks like to kind of apply the lessons that we've learned in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we looked at how kingdom citizens are to deal with with sin issues in their own lives as they work with their fellow citizens to deal with sin in one another's lives. That's an appropriate biblical thing for us to do, to, to help one another work through our sin issues. 
But now Jesus is, is moving into helping us understand the, the foundational ethic for the kingdom of God. And so if you had to sum up the, the foundation, foundational guiding principle of what it means to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, you find yourself dealing with the golden rule, that foundational ethic for all of our horizontal relationships. You know, we talk about relationships. One of the helpful descriptions would be uh, vertical and horizontal relationships. Our, our vertical relationships are very limited in scope. It's clearly, though, our most significant relationship is, as our vertical relationship de details our relationship with God. Do you know that every single human being on the planet who ever has lived or whoever will lives has a vertical relationship? Every single person. It doesn't matter if they're agnostics or atheists or, or Christians, well, whatever. They all have a, a vertical relationship. Even when that relationship is, is stressed or strained or beleaguered, it is still there even if it is suppressed. You, you think about an atheist. An atheist has to define what they believe by what they don't believe. And, and so an atheist says, I don't believe in God, but, but by virtue of even saying, I don't believe in God, they're making a statement about the, the relationship that they have. They're making a statement about their, their understanding from God, and their relationship with God is, I don't want anything to do with him. It's a standoffish relationship. They suppress it by saying they simply don't believe. However, for the Christian, the vertical relationship that we have with God should be treated as the most significant relationship that we have. You say, what's the most important relationship you have? You say, well, it's my spouse. No, it's not. I can assure you your spouse wants your relationship with God to be more important because your relationship with God will only enhance your relationship with your spouse. Uh, we, we have to treat that vertical relationship as the most significant relationship in our lives. When we talk about horizontal relationships, we're, it's a much broader scope. It's a much bigger group of people. It's, it's all of our neighbors that we have, not just the neighbors across the street, but the neighbors we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. All of those relationships that we have, we've got a lot of neighbors, some of those relationships are great. Some of those relationships, well, maybe they're a little more stressed. But as you think of what governs those horizontal relationships, it is this idea of the golden rule that governs all of those relationships. So as you think about this foundational principle, you have to ask a very basic question. How do you like to be treated? Because that's what the golden rule says, is treat others like you want to be treated. So to answer the question, you have to first start with a, with a self-analysis. You have to start with, how do I like to be treated? And I think we could come up with a lengthy list of, of how we like to be treated. We could probably come up with a very common set of, of standards of, of how we like to be treated. We like to be respected. We like to be loved. We, we like to be treated fairly. I think we all appreciate honesty. But as I thought about that list of, of how I like to be treated and how I want others to treat me, a, a summary word that, that really boils that down is just a simple four-letter word, kind. I want to be treated with kindness. I think that's true for everybody. Respect and love and fairness and honesty, all those things can be, can be really boiled down to the idea of simple kindness. I want to be shown kindness. And I think you do as well. 
And the thing about kindness is that kindness applies regardless of the nature of the relationship. My most personal human relationship that I have with my spouse or, or with my children, I think those relationships benefit from kindness. They, they, they benefit if we show kindness to one another. We think about our most professional relationships, our, our relationships at our workplaces, or, or the relationship with your physician. That's a professional relationship. You, you understand that those relationships benefit from, from kindness, right? Even my most fleeting relationships can be enhanced by kindness. What do I mean by my most fleeting relationships? Well, the person at the drive through I have a relationship with that person. It's very fleeting. It doesn't last long. But, but for a moment in time, we are interacting with one another. And just go to the Chick-fil-A drive-thru and compare it to the McDonald's drive-thru. And you'll understand the difference. That, that the kindness, I mean, you walk away, from, you drive away, you don't walk away from Chick-fil-A anymore, you drive away, but you drive away from Chick-fil-A feeling like that you are the king of the planet. It is our pleasure to serve you. We're so happy that you're here. I mean, I think that they would get into the car and cut the chicken sandwich up into bite-sized pieces if I needed them to. I mean, that's how, that's how kind they are. Um, the guy at the intersection across the way, the four-way stop, uh, think about just the simple exchange of kindness that happens if you both get there at the same time and you make eye contact with that guy and you do this right here. Just simple kindness. Just motioning a guy on through the intersection. It's a fleeting relationship. It doesn't last long. You don't even know each other's names. But you do have kindness that you extend toward one another. It's amazing how, how important kindness is in all of those different relationships. And the thing is, is that, is that kindness doesn't cover up my other desires. It, just because I want someone to be kind to me, it, it, it doesn't mean that... Uh, that I don't want someone to also be honest with me. However, wouldn't you much rather have someone who is kind be honest with you than someone who is mean? I certainly would. Uh, respect, by its nature, is kind. And kindness is a pleasure to reciprocate. Again, think about the drive through That person looks at you and says, it's my pleasure. Well, you want to look back and say, well, it's my pleasure too. Thank you for giving me the, my chicken sandwich. I'm so happy that you were so happy to provide it to me. It's easy to reciprocate that. However, we live in this world where, and I've said this, I've said this so much, there is a, a mean-spiritedness that has taken hold in our world today. There is a, an unkind spirit that has, has really, really captivated people's hearts. And I hate to say this, too many Christians have allowed that unkind spirit to take hold in their own lives. Uh, we've allowed our keyboards and our smartphones and our LED screens to become hiding places where we can be unkind towards people. We've allowed unkindness to creep into so many different aspects of our life. You know, there's a big difference between going on to Yelp or something like that and saying that the restaurant was dirty versus my server was a moron. Right? right? I mean, one is true, one is just mean. And, and we've allowed ourselves to get into that idea where, where I can just hide behind my screen, I can hide behind my keyboard, and I can say mean, nasty things about people that I disagree with. I can say mean, nasty, people, mean, nasty things about people I go to church with. I can say mean, nasty things about people I disagree with politically. That I can just be mean and nasty. And Christians, it ought not be that way. 
Because again, the foundational ethic of our horizontal relationships is what? Doing to others as you would like to be done unto you. Be kind to others because you want to be treated with kindness. Your biggest enemy will only be benefited if you show kindness to them. You know, I think the golden rule is well supplemented by the old-fashioned mama's rule. You know mama's rule, and when it comes to the spirit of meanness of this age, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. So kindness sums up how we, how we treat these relationships that we have in the kingdom of God. And we say, well, well that's great, but, but how do we know what it looks like? Well, the good news is God has shown us what kindness looks like. We go back to the Sermon on the Mount. And look at verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. You know, God demonstrates kindness for us in so many ways. One of the ways that God demonstrates kindness to us here is by allowing us the opportunity to be in relationship with Him, by giving us the opportunity to be in communion with Him. You know, these verses are very dangerous, verses 7 and 8 here in the Sermon on the Mount. They're very dangerous for those who are biblically illiterate. Christians who read the Bible and understand the Bible understand that you don't take verses out of the Bible and use them as weapons or use them to prove your, your, your goofy doctrine, your goofy theology. These verses are very easy to take out of context and to affirm things that really aren't uh, affirmable from a biblical position. Out of context, these verses lead to all kinds of corrupt prosperity gospel teaching. If you'll just ask and seek and knock, God will answer you, and God will give you all the desires of your heart. If you just name it and claim it, God will give it to you, and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's popular today. There's a lot of books that are sold based on that idea. There's a lot of people who sit in our churches on Sunday morning who are watching television later on that that are listening to that and they're really buying into that teaching however in the context of the sermon on the mount we encounter these verses not in the sense of of a prosperity type of teaching we actually run into these verses as broken people because we've experienced just how 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 broken we are how how inadequate we are to reach the standards that god has given to us And so this idea of asking and seeking and knocking is is not about your financial prosperity. It's about the depth of your relationship with God. It's about the depth of your walk with Christ. So when it comes for our need to to have righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, remember back in chapter 5, verse 20, when it comes to our need to have righteousness that meets this standard, then absolutely ask and seek and knock. When it comes to our our devotion to Christ that is often lukewarm and we want a deeper, more personal walk with Christ, then absolutely ask and seek and knock. You're never going to find a Heavenly Father who looks at you when you're asking and seeking and knocking and you're praying, God, please give me a a closer relationship with you. Please help me have a thirst for your word. Please help me have a a love for your church. Please help me be in this place where where I'm in a a closer place with you. God's not going to look at you and say, yeah, I don't think so. Absolutely ask, seek, and knock. Absolutely. 
When it comes to taming our wandering eyes, then absolutely ask and seek and knock. When it comes to seeking first the kingdom of God, absolutely ask and seek and knock. You see, this is a remarkable kindness that God shows to us by allowing people like us who are sinful by nature and sinful by choice by allowing us into a personal relationship with him and then dwelling with us that's a kindness that god shows us he could give us just a list of do's and don'ts and say go figure it out but that's not what god does god not only gives us this this list of what the expectations are he then walks with us along the way he walks with us in the journey he dwells within us that's God's kindness. Just, just consider this. Jesus says that the door will be opened if you just knock. That's a, that's a visual for us. Think about that. If you had someone who claimed to be your friend, but only came by when they needed something, they break whatever tools they might borrow, quite honestly, that's probably not the best friend in the world. If that person came and knocked on your door, you might be tempted to turn the lights off real quick because you don't want to talk to that friend. You know that friend is only coming because that friend perceives that he has a need that you can help him meet. Yet here Jesus says if we knock on the door, it'll be open to us. How many times have we treated God that way? I've got a need, and the only one that can help, help me meet this need is I need to go knock on the door right now. Uh, he gave me something last time, and I really ruined it. I broke it, but I need it again, so let me go knock on the door again. What a, what a kindness God shows to us that he's willing to open the door if we simply knock. That's God's kindness put on display for us when he enters into this relationship with us with people that really don't deserve that relationship. Secondly, God shows us his kindness by something we call common grace. Common grace. Look at verse 11. He says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus points out the fact that even evil people generally know how to take care of their kids. Isn't that interesting? I know there's abundant examples of those who don't. And some of us work in fields where we encounter that more than others. But I think we can all agree that the general experience of humanity is that people generally try to take care of their kids. And they may do it in ways that I don't agree with. They may do it and, and go do things that I, I, I'm opposed to. But generally speaking, human beings made in the image and likeness of God, regardless of their religious affiliation, generally have a sense that they should take care of their kids. Isn't that interesting? That's God's common grace. As Christians, we've received special grace. We've received it through Jesus. But God really gives grace to everybody, and for that we're thankful, because we all benefit from that grace that God gives. From the spring rains that establish the crops, that's God's grace poured out on everybody. Everybody benefits that. I think ice cream is a common grace of God. Everybody gets it, and, and everybody seems to enjoy it. You know, it's not a, there's not a moral test for ice cream. If you uh, simply go to the ice cream shop and, and you've got a couple of dollars in your pocket, you can benefit from ice cream. I've been in very poor neighborhoods where, where I've seen food trucks come by and, and give children ice cream, don't even have a couple of dollars in their pocket. They just get it for free. 
That's God's common grace. How about penicillin, right? That's God's common grace. You don't have to, there's not a moral checklist on whether you should get penicillin or not. You don't have to pass a test. If you've got an infection that you need penicillin for, you can get it. You can go to Publix and get it for free, I'm pretty sure. That's God's common grace. It's on display. Everybody gets it. Everybody benefits from it. God gives us that kindness. We don't deserve these good things. We don't deserve these good gifts. Yet God, in his kindness, shows us these incredible, incredible things. And what God is doing is, is that by showing this kindness to people that, he doesn't, that, that don't even receive him, by, by showing that kindness to people who even reject him, he's showing us what it means to be kind even to those people that differ from us. And even when appropriate, to show kindness to those who are hostile to us. You know, we not only see God's grace at work in the common elements of goodness in the world, we see his grace at work in his restraint of evil. God's put guardrails in place to help, help us function in society. You've got institutions like civil authority and the family. Those are all elements of God's grace that, that help restrain evil. God has given us consciences. Everybody in here has got a conscience. It don't matter if you're a Christian or not. Everybody in here has got a conscience. You, you, know, you, you know the difference between right and wrong. Children learn it real quick. Uh, a a three-year-old has a conscience. I've seen three-year-olds who know the difference between right and wrong. They have a conscience that God has given them regardless of their, of their faith. Those are all elements of God's grace, God's kindness that are being shown to us. Thirdly, you can't talk about God's kindness without talking about his patience. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, listen. He says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. We have so much to be thankful for. That God is patient with us. Aren't you glad God's patient with you? <laughs> I'm thankful God's patient. Because based on our behavior, our ingratitude, our self-centeredness, He would be totally just to give us what we deserve. It would be completely within his holy, righteous judgment to pour his wrath out upon us because we are absolutely deserving of it. But instead, the Bible tells us that he is patient with us, that in his patience, his forbearance, his kindness, he is giving us time to repent. You know, there's undoubtedly countless things in our lives that God knows about, that we've hidden from others, that we've suppressed that we've even pretended that we can manage. And the truth of the matter is, is that God is simply showing us kindness and giving us the opportunity to turn from sins. There's some today who are under the sound of my voice. You need to take advantage of God's patience with you. Repent from your sin and trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. You've been putting it off. You've been making a lot of excuses. But what you've really been doing is what the Bible says here. You've been presuming on the riches of his kindness. Don't miss what verse 5 of Romans chapter 2 says. Paul goes on talking about God's kindness that leads to repentance, but he then goes on to say, because of your hard and impenitent hearts, listen, you are, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
You could choose today to take advantage of God's kindness, of, of His patience, and you could turn from sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, or you could continue to presume upon His kindness. One leads to life, the other leads to wrath. As we enter into this Advent season, there's one final way that God has shown His kindness to us. And He's shown us His kindness through the gift of His Son. For the next month, this week and three more weeks, we'll be celebrating Christmas, the Advent season. And there's all the stuff that goes along with it. There's the songs, there's the shopping, there's the gifts, there's the food, the family, and all those things that we certainly enjoy. But let us not forget the fact that God has given us the greatest gift imaginable through the gift of His Son. And God has shown us what true kindness really and truly looks like by exchanging the life of His Son in exchange for ours. By doing so, He's demonstrated for us what kindness in the kingdom of God really and truly looks like. So let me ask you a question. How are you doing at the golden rule today? How are you in treating others in the way that you want to be treated? How are you in treating those that are, quite honestly, hard to treat kindly? How are you at treating the person who grates on your spine? How are you in dealing with the employer or employee that doesn't rub you the right way? How are you doing in treating others with kindness? The fact is you've been given a remarkable example in the Lord. You've seen God's kindness poured out to us. So how are you doing today at showing the kindness of God to the people in your life, even the people who don't deserve it? You know, I love the story of Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9. I don't know why more people don't name their babies Mephibosheth. Gosh, it's an incredible story because it's our story. Mephibosheth was the son of King Saul. He was the only son of Saul who remained. After David ascended to the throne of Israel, he sought out someone of Saul's house. In that day, the heirs to the former king might prove to be rivals to the king who is currently on the throne. And so it would make sense in that day for all of Saul's descendants to be snuffed out by King David. But instead of eliminating all of Saul's descendants, David sought out somebody from Saul's house, and we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3, is there not still someone from the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to? Saul's son, Mephibosheth, is the only one left. And David showed remarkable kindness to him. He's not somebody who necessarily deserved kindness, but, God, but David showed kindness to him by welcoming him into his home and by giving him a permanent place at the king's table. He showed kindness to somebody that didn't deserve kindness. And God calls us as kingdom citizens to show that same level of kindness because ultimately that's the level of kindness that God has shown us. Who is it in your life this week? that you can show the kindness of God to. Would you pray with me, please?
God, I'm so grateful for your kindness that you have shown us, for the generosity of your grace that you give to us in abundance. God, we are sorry sinners, and we do not deserve your mercies. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your kindness. Yet out of your abundant love for us, you have shown us remarkable kindness by allowing us to be in relationship with you, by showing us common grace in this world in which we live, where your goodness is evident to all who are, uh, who are paying attention. Uh, most of all, Lord, though, we're, we're so grateful for the kindness that you've shown us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by allowing the Lord Jesus to come and to give his life in exchange for ours, but not staying dead, but by conquering death by, and guaranteeing that we too will have the same, the same privilege. God, that is kindness, that is grace, and that is the golden rule on display. So Lord, would you help us as we look at our lives to look for those in our lives that we should show some kindness to because we've not really shown the golden rule in that relationship. Maybe it's someone we work with. Maybe it's somebody we go to school with. Maybe it's a, a parent or a child. Lord, would you help us to, to be kind in all of our horizontal relationships as we seek to honor the golden rule in our lives? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.